This is They Create Worlds, episode 58. EA Sports. It's in the game. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be. A land that's called reality. You'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. It was once out of the game, but now... It's in the game. It's EA. Sports. Because if it's in the game, it's in the game. Quite literally. Very literally in the game. Absolutely. Certainly one of the classic taglines, I think it's fair to say. I don't think there's a single video game player of a certain age that does not know that tagline. I mean, you and you and I were not... Sports guys. We did not play a sports game. My sport was baseball, and EA was never particularly good in that realm, so I never played an EA baseball game. And you weren't into the sports ball at all. So, I mean, we did not play EA sports games, Madden, NHL, etc. But (laughs) we know that tagline, don't we? We do. And I would argue it's fair to say that people outside of gaming probably know that tagline because that's something that was plastered even on television in primetime. Absolutely. And of course, you have to remember, too, that a lot of the players of some of these sports games, particularly Madden, but even the others as well, aren't really gamers. EA Sports, and particularly Madden, is something that has crossed over into a mainstream that even video games haven't. I mean, I think it's fair to say that video games are pretty mainstream today overall, but they're still not as mainstream as football. They're still not as mainstream as sports, but EA Sports is. And this is part of the secret of EA's success, because through all of the rises and falls, ups and downs, as it's tried this and tried that in various other areas of its business, for the last two decades, give or take, well, for the last two and a half decades, really, time flies, doesn't it? We're old. Get off our lawn. For the last two and a half decades, they've always been able to rely on that steady stream of EA Sports money to kind of be a baseline and be a safety net as they do whatever else they're doing, because it is such a big, powerful and mainstream thing. I mean, all of the professional football players pretty much play Madden, which is kind of surprising. Well, I mean, yes and no. On the one hand, right, they play the real thing. Don't they get enough of the football? (laughs) Yeah, you think they want a little bit of a break. I've been playing football all day. Let's go home and play football on my television. But on, on the other hand, part of the appeal of Madden is it is a pretty darn good, at this point, after so many years of iteration, representation of the game of football. And it's one that you can enjoy without 300 pound linebackers trying to kill you. So, (laughs) there you have it. Fair enough. Definitely fair enough. For those who might say, hey, wait a minute. I recall back in the day, there was this thing called EA, the teenage years. Didn't you go into that whole EA sports thing then? We did. A little bit of this will be overlap. A little bit. But not all of it, because we are going to go a little more into some of the foundational games. We're going to go a little more into some of the players. not football players, but players at EA and at EA's partners that kind of shaped these games. 
And as always, I'm always talking to people, always talking to more people. I've talked to Bing Gordon since we did the teenage years, who was in charge of marketing when this whole EA Sports thing was coming together. There's more to know, there's more depth to get into, and there's more new information based on all the people I've talked to. So we'll cover a little of the same ground, but it's going to be a lot of new ground too. Sort of think of it as we're going down the EA highway, instead of just passing by and looking at the suburb of EA Sports from the high ground, we're going to go weaving into the myriad depths and corners of the EA suburb. That's right. We are going to place ourselves in the game. So let's dive in. We're on the off ramp. We're going down. (laughs) Where's our first turn? So the thing about EA Sports is it almost, when you look back, feels inevitable. You can see that EA did this game, EA did this game, EA did this game. Of course they became EA Sports. But it was kind of almost accidental and almost more a series of coincidences that led them down this path towards EA Sports. It wasn't like there was this master plan from the very early days of the company to be like, we are going to be sports company. Well, that's true. With a lot of different game companies, they sort of fall into it by accident for so many things that they do. Absolutely. But I will say this about EA. Sports has always been in its DNA a little bit. So while it could have easily not gone in the direction of EA Sports, there was always a little something, I think it's fair to say, in the company DNA pushing them in that direction. You may recall from our EA kind of origin episode that Trip Hawkins, founder, of course, of Electronic Arts, was a fanatic sports fan and a fanatic sports game fan going way back. I mean, all the way back to his childhood. Big football guy, big baseball guy, loved the Stratomatic game and and even the pre-Stratomatic stuff. I mean, he's old enough that he was playing some of the baseball games that existed before Stratomatic that were kind of statistically driven, but not to the same degree as a Stratomatic. These old games where you would have baseball players on little cards that you would put on a spinner and the card would have like a home run section, a strikeout section, a single section, and you'd spin the card and see where it landed. But the different sections would be different sizes based on the player's tendencies. So Babe Ruth would have a much bigger home run section than some light hitting utility infielder would. So they weren't fully stats driven, but it was a little bit different from just pure random chance as well. So, I mean, he was playing those kind of baseball games when he was a young kid. And then when Stratomatic came along in the 60s, he switched over to Stratomatic baseball and football which uh, was was more statistically driven even than that. His very first entrepreneurial venture, uh, the trip did in the 70s when he was still a teenager, was trying to market a football board game. He created a stats-driven football board game and then formed a little company to try to market it. Um, Didn't go anywhere. He didn't sell anything. The company, such as it was, went bust. I mean, it was just like $5,000 of his family's money that he put into it. I mean, it he was a teenager. This was as much an experiment and for fun as it was for profit, I think it's fair to say. There was always sports in the DNA of the company because there was always sports at the heart of what Trip Hawkins was doing. Flash forward to 1982 and the founding of EA, and the early games 
none of the first wave of games were sports games. There were a few arcade clones. There were a few strategy games. But there was not a sports game in that initial set. And there really weren't much in the way of sports games in the computer market generally. I mean, the the technology was just so primitive at the time. There wasn't much you could do with sports. I mean, there were sports games in the arcade. And there were sports games on the VCS and on the Intellivision, baseball games, football games, whatever. Even the original Magnavox Odyssey in 1972 had something that it called a football game. So there were sports games around, but the technology was so primitive that you couldn't do much with it because sports games, you have all the players, you have a lot of moving pieces. There's all the stats going on. And then if you want to make it realistic uh, from a physics perspective as well, then there's a lot of physics calculations. There really wasn't a sports market. A few more strategy-oriented games, but that was about it. So EA kind of had the first bigger sports hit on computers, not on consoles. There were a couple of games that did okay on consoles, but on computers in late 1983, early 1984. And that's Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one, one-on-one basketball, which we've talked about, of course, uh, in our EA episodes before. Mm Mm-hmm. That game really was Tripp's baby. I mean, Tripp did want to do a sports game. I think it's fair to say. Tripp was not really involved in the creation of the EA Sports brand, which, of course, we'll get to later in this episode. Because he's the CEO, he's running the company, he's not involved in kind of that day-to-day marketing stuff. The very first sports game, one-on-one, was definitely Tripp's baby. He wanted to do a sports game. One-on-one basketball seemed like something that was doable because you're not having to model an entire team, which is very hard for your Apple IIs and your Commodore 64s at the time. So he's the one that kind of formulated that idea and was able to get Dr. J, Julius Irving, on board, the, the great Philadelphia 76er player. Once he had Julius Irving on board, then they were able to go to Larry Bird's agent, one of the other great players at the time, and get Larry Bird to agree to a deal as well. Julius Irving was actually kind of interested in what was going on. I mean, he actually came down and hung out with the EA people for a day and shot hoops with them and talked to them about some of his philosophy on basketball and all that. I mean, Larry Bird didn't care. Larry was just kind of in it for the money, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Julius Irving actually took a little bit of an interest in it. Uh, The producer on the game was Joey Barra, who we've talked about before. I mean, he was, of the early producers, he was the one that was the most game-oriented. The other early producers, Dave Evans and Pat Marriott, Tripp had brought with him out of Apple, and they had experience as project managers, but they weren't really game people. Joey Barra was a game person and, and very quickly ended up being the most valuable of the early producers. Because he could actually impart his game knowledge and game design philosophy into a product in a way that some of the early producers couldn't do. I mean, all the producers were doing that after a while once they started getting producers in place that were more in tune with games. But in the beginning, Joe was really the one doing it. For a programmer, they got a fellow kind of a teenage coder type named Eric Hammond to do the coding. The interesting thing about Dr. Jane Larry Bird is. We've talked, of course, about how EA was founded on this philosophy that the artist is the star and that the artist is an independent software 
developer that EA provides support to and then publishes their product. But they're not employees of the company. EA does not employ game designers at this All the game of time. designers are really just contractors that EA supports and says, hey, here's our really good, expensive, fancy computer. Here's some art people. Here's some music people. Here's a lot of soda <laughs> and chips and snacks. You're right, except that they're, they're more than contractors because a contractor is someone where you're like, I have this plan. You go build it for me. They wanted the software artists to do what they wanted to do for the most part. So it was the software artist saying, I have this great game. Will you help me bring it to market? But with one-on-one, it was different. It was more of a contractor relationship. Eric Hammond was not an employee of EA. But Trip Hawkins and Joey Barra were driving the design of this game just as much as anybody was. I mean, Eric Hammond helped out with the design of the game as well. But Eric Hammond was more the contract programmer that was bringing to life the ideas that Trip Hawkins and Joey Barra had on how to craft this game of one-on-one basketball. Even at this early period in EA's history, you're starting to see this shift in sports games where EA is driving the sports thing, and it's more like they're hiring a contractor to see it through. It's not like some of the other early products where the software artist had the game idea and then EA was just kind of nurturing it through. So the first real sports game that we can attribute to EA is this one-on-one basketball. Exactly. It's also their first hit. I mean, we talked about how EA really struggled. And I mean, they struggled for years. After 84 or 85, it got a little better. But even in the late 80s, they were still kind of struggling. Cash was tight. It was not an easy go. And they had a lot of games that didn't do as well as they had hoped. But Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one, sold several hundred thousand copies. Not all at once, not all at the end of 83, but over the next couple of years, sold several hundred thousand copies, which was a substantial number for that period of time. And so it was very important in saving the company. And it was the beginning of sports being in kind of the company DNA. Trip Hawkins, while he was a general sports fan and he was a fan of Julius Irving, his love was not basketball. I mean, his love really was football. That's the sport that he was particularly interested in. And when we're talking about football, for our European and non-American listeners, we mean football American, not soccer. Yes. Just to be clear in case someone might be confused. That's right. Big men with big shoulder pads and big helmets smashing into each other for big money. It's like rugby, but less brutal. (laughs) Yes. Once they had that basketball game kind of under their belt and it's like okay we can do this we can do a sports game and you know it can be a successful game trip really wanted to turn his attention to football and he really wanted to have a football game he always wanted to have a football game going all the way back to the 70s when he tried to do the board game you know so in 1984 begins the great odyssey of what eventually became john madden football And we've covered that one extensively. We did cover it some, but it's so important to the story that that we will be covering it again. John Madden Football was once again produced by Joey Barra, fresh off of his success from one-on-one. To code this one, they brought in a guy that Eric Hammond knew named Robin Antonick to be the programmer. But again, it was kind of Trip Hawkins and Joey Barra 
that were really going to be driving the design. And Robin Antonick was more of a contract programmer than he was a software artist in the same sense that some of the guys that did their other games were. In terms of this EA football game, they knew that they wanted a personality with it again, just like they had personalities with the basketball game. Trip Hawkins knew exactly who he wanted for that personality. Without question, Joe Montana. This was very soon after the famous Super Bowl of the catch where Joe Montana led the 49ers to Super Bowl victory. Joe Montana is clearly the best quarterback in the sport. He's the most famous guy in the sport. He's at the height of his powers. We need Joe Montana football at Electronic Arts. But I thought you said it was John Madden football. Well, it turned out Joe Montana was already taken. Oops. The sources say he had signed a deal with Atari. There was no Joe Montana Atari game ever. So I don't know if that's trip misremembering, but it's very possible he might have signed some kind of deal with Atari. I mean, this is the period of time when the crash is going on and Atari is falling apart. So it's certainly possible that Atari might have signed him to a deal and then never ended up putting out a game because the whole died. industry <laughs> exploding. For whatever reason, Joe Montana was not available. So, shoot. <laughs> That's not going to work. Plan B. So what do we do if we don't have Joe Montana? Well, we get another quarterback that people may have heard of, but maybe one that isn't quite as in demand. So plan B is Joe Cap, who had previously been a famous quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. He was now retired. He was a college football coach, but he was no longer a professional player. He was an older guy. So Tripp approaches Joe Cap and says, will you be on my football game? Joe says, yes, I'll do that, but I want my name and my picture on the cover, and I want royalties, and I want this, and I want that. Tripp thinks to himself, okay, if I have to give up that much for a personality, then I need to get myself a slightly more current and slightly better personality than Joe Cap." He felt that Joe Cap was asking for too much relative to his fame at the time. So that's when he finally hits on the idea of John Madden. Plan C. Third time's <laughs> a charm. John Madden was a famous coach. He had won a Super Bowl just recently in 1980 with the Oakland Raiders and had parlayed his fame from that Super Bowl victory into becoming a spokesman. He was the spokesman for Miller Beer. He was the guy that was giving the famous slogan, tastes great, less filling for Miller Lite during that time period. And he'd become a broadcaster. So he was pretty well known from all of those exploits. You know, he wasn't a, an active player like Joe Montana or a semi-legendary former player like Joe Cap, but he was a known entity in the world of football. And so that seemed like a reasonable person to go to and offer the royalties and offer the name on the box and the picture on the box and all of that. It felt a little more appropriate to do that with John Madden than it did with Joe Cap. And what I would also say is because he's focused more on coaching, 
and you're taking on a coaching role, it's sort of like I'm coaching with him as we take our team to victory. Absolutely. I think that that ended up being an advantage of that as well. I think it's fair to say. They approach John Madden and, you know, he's fine with it. He doesn't really know much about computers. He doesn't really believe that this game's necessarily going to be big in any way, shape, or form. But he figures Tripp seems like a pretty smart guy and knows what he's doing. So at least the game itself will probably not be a complete disgrace to his name. He figures if worse comes to worse, he was teaching some courses at the time, too. He could always use the game in the course he was teaching to do play examples or something. So he's like, why not? You know, I mean, he has no idea, no idea that 20 years later, he's going to be known less as famous sports broadcaster and and Super Bowl winning coach as he is the guy whose name is on the football game. But he figures, what the heck, we'll give this a shot. He agrees. I'm not exactly sure. It may be as late as 1986 before he signs on the dotted line. That's the point when Robin Antonick's contract is changed to refer to John Madden football instead of just EA football. Could be that they were a little bit behind on getting that change and he signed on a little earlier than that. But the game development started in 1984. But, you know, Madden himself is is not on until a little later because they're trying to go through these other sponsorship options first. Now, you said the game development started in 84 and he's signing in 86. So this development went a really long time, and that had to deal with the big problem they were trying to accomplish, 11-on-11 football. That's right. So this game is in development for the Apple II. The Apple II is an 8-bit computer. It's good for its time, but asking an 8-bit computer with, you know, 48K, 64K of memory. K, not megabytes, (laughs) not gigabytes, K. To simulate a football game is really asking a whole lot. And they want to simulate the entirety of the football game. They don't just want the stats to be right. And then, you know, the players move randomly on the field or whatever. And then the results are based on the stats. And they don't want it to be arcadey, where it's entirely just if you're good at moving your controller this way and that way, you move your player up the field. They want this game to have real football plays. They want the players to move around believably and interact with each other believably. They want the physics to work. That's a lot to ask an Apple II. They really don't think they can do it with 11 players on a side. That's just too many objects. It's too many moving objects. Nobody's done it at this point. Nobody has done an 11-on-11 football game. It's always a reduced set of players because that's just too much for the processors of the time to handle. And we talked about this before. They're on a long train trip with Madden picking his brain. Madden was notorious for his fear of flying and his hatred of airplanes. So when he was going around the country back in those days, you know, broadcasting these games, he would take the train. He wouldn't fly. So he was going from someplace out west to someplace further east or vice versa you know, a long train trip, a two-day train trip. So Trip Hawkins and Joey Barrow went with him, and I think Robin Antonick was there too, just to pick his brain and get his opinion on all the, the different kinds of plays and all of the stuff that makes football football. Over the course of this meeting, it comes out that they're at the moment looking at doing seven-on-seven football. 
that's the point that John Madden says, no, that's not football. If my name is going to be on this game, it's going to be 11 on 11 football. Well, shoot. <laughs> now, I, you know, I've talked to Joey Barr, and I've talked to Joey Barr since the last time we, we did all of this. Joey Barra claims that he had always been a proponent of doing it 11 on 11 as well, that it was Trip that was saying, ah, oh, can't be done, can't be done, can't be done. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's how Joe remembers it. But either way, there, there's no doubt, because multiple people have said, there's no doubt that they pitched Madden on 7 versus 7. And he said, no, if it's not 11 on 11, it's not real football, and my name's not going on that product. So the challenge became, how do you do that? This delays the game even more. And Robin Antonick is having real trouble with this, and it's not really his fault. They're trying to get an Apple II computer to do something that an Apple II computer just simply should not be able to do. And so Robin Antonick is, is having a devil of a time figuring this out. The project's killing Joey Barr. Joey Barr eventually leaves it in 1988. Yes, the game is still ongoing in 1988. Four years development so far. <laughs> exactly. Because he's just completely burned out on it. Because he is spending all of his time basically studying football and studying football plays and trying to work with Robin to get all of this stuff to be realistically depicted within the football game that they're trying to make. I mean, it gets to the point where he becomes such an expert on football that he can start, if he's watching a football game in, in that time period, he could figure out what play was going to be called while the players were still lining up. That's how much he was <laughs> eating, <laughs> breathing, and, and sleeping football in the mid-80s, trying to get this darn Madden thing to work. It's just not getting anywhere. And so they finally bring in a third company, a third-party company, to try to fix this and to try to get this darn thing finally working. And that company is Bethesda Softworks. Today, we know Bethesda, of course, as the Elder Scrolls company. They're the big open-world role-playing game company. But in the 80s and early 90s, they were actually known as a sports company. That is what they did primarily with sports games. And they had done a football game called Gridiron. And the thing about Gridiron that set it apart from everything else at the time is it was a physics-based football simulation wasn't stats-based, and it wasn't just pure arcade, I point my joystick in this direction and the player runs. It was accurately depicting the physics of a football play and the movement of the players and the interaction of the players. Now, it was doing this with dots, literally with dots. The graphical representation was very poor. There was nothing there. But it was a sacrifice that they chose to make in order to get the physics to work. Because as we said, you just couldn't get that whole package to work on an Apple II or an Commodore 64 back then. Accolade tried doing it. They put out a football game in, in 1987 that beat Madden to market, because Madden's still in development hell, called Fourth and Inches that was 11-on-11 11 11 football. That was probably the first 11-on-11 11 11 football game. And it was, it was terrible. It was slow because it really couldn't handle it. And it did not sell well. Gridiron was able to do the physics. It just didn't do the graphics. But their physics engine was so good that EA decided, okay, we're going to bring Bethesda in. And we're going to have them get this darn thing to work. And at that point, it gets murky. 
murky because Bethesda works on the game for a while and then there's some disagreement over things between EA and Bethesda. Bethesda ends up suing EA. They settle and it's all under, you know, non-disclosure and whatnot. So no one's been able to talk about what happened. But long story short, Bethesda leaves the project, but at least some of their work probably made it into the final product. How much, we don't know because of the settlement. Officially, Robin Antonick is the coder of the original John Madden football on the Apple II, finally released in 1989. (laughs) At least some of what's in there is actually Bethesda Softworks Gridiron. How much, who can say? A decompiler? (laughs) Yeah, but it's not that simple because you can't tell just from decompiling the code who actually wrote what code. I mean, it's not. Why can't we just get those comments back in with a decompiler? Why are they thrown away? (laughs) So, no, I mean, obviously you can break down the code, but that's not going to help. But that lawsuit and that disagreement and those difficulties push the game back even further. By this time, everyone in EA is saying kill it. Yeah, I mean, it's been in development hell for five years, and you're trying to put it out on the Apple II, which by that point, late 80s, that's a very venerable system. It's well past its peak. The Apple II is really not a viable game platform past 1986 or 1987. The Commodore 64, the Nintendo Entertainment System, and even the IBM PC have completely eclipsed the Apple II by the middle of the 1980s. By 1989, you should not be releasing a new game with the Apple II as your lead platform anymore. But I mean, that's late Nintendo era. <laughs> I know, but they're locked... Techno Bowl has been out. It has, it has, absolutely. But they're locked in at this point. You know, I mean, it would delay it even more if they tried to put it to another platform. So, I mean, at this point, they're locked in and they just have to get the darn thing out. And they do. They get it out in 1989. We'll put John Madden football in the show notes. Not sure that we did that the first time around because we might have. but We did. Okay. But we'll, I'm pretty sure we did. We'll put it in the show notes again. It is primitive as all get out. It is slow. Slow, 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 slow. Because it needs processing power to compute the physics and compute the math. And it needs processing power to move 22 objects around the screen and so like when you're lining up a pass the action actually basically grinds to a halt while you're lining up that pass and throwing that pass and then it starts up again because it's it's doing calculations and it can't really move all the players around in real time and do the physics calculations so it's slow the graphics are incredibly primitive there's no licenses for the nfl or the the players association just the john madden license It has a pretty deep playbook, all things considered, because of the incredible amount of work they went into in trying to make this thing realistic. The physics, which are probably, at least in part, Bethesda's physics, are solid as well, but it's just not much of a game. And it's on a dead platform. You know, the original John Madden football, it's it's really not much. But, of course, it's going to end up being the foundation of an absolute legendary series. One of the legendary series that ranks right up there with your Marios and your Zeldas in terms of its influence 
on the video game market. And it's shocking that a game that pretty much for all intents and purposes failed at launch on a dead platform, five years of development, nightmares, they'd even go, you know, let's make a second one. (laughs) But there are a few things going on that makes it kind of important that they do that. And so we'll get back to Madden, but we're going to backtrack a little bit then and bring some other things up to speed. In this period of time, in the mid-80s, EA's game development is largely driven by the interests of the producers, quite frankly. The producers are the ones that are going out and looking for talent. They're the ones going out looking for games. And it tends to be kind of what the interests of these producers are that, that tends to drive what EA's portfolio is. It's not all slickly planned and manufactured like we're going to have you know, this many games in this genre this year and this many games in this genre and we're going to spread out the release in this quarter and this quarter and this quarter. You know, it's it's not a forecasting driven company like that. It's not the EA of the 1990s or the 2000s. It's very artist driven and it's very producer driven. It's very production driven company. Some other sports things start to emerge in the mid 80s, but again, it's not because of any overarching plan. It's just because of where the interests of the producers lie. And I do think the fact that Trip is a sports fan and that the one-on-one game has happened and the Madden game is kind of happening in the background, I do think that plays a role in the fact that other producers also explore sports games. But it's also down to the fact that there were certain producers of the company that really loved sports games, and one of those is Don Daglo. Don Daglo goes way back in sports because he was doing mainframe work, institutional computers, at his university in the 1970s, he discovered mainframes. One of the very first things he ever did back in 1971 was create a little baseball management game on the computer at Panoma College, which is where he was at. So he was a huge baseball fan, and he was in on the baseball thing going way back, and then he had gone to Mattel. Uh, His first professional job creating games was at Mattel Electronics. He was one of the original Blue Sky Rangers working on the Intellivision. At Mattel, he had done a baseball game as well with a programmer named Eddie Dombrower, whom he had recruited out of Panoma. They didn't go to school together, but because Don Daglo had gone to Panoma and then been an instructor at Panoma, he maintained ties with the university when he left Mattel and was always recruiting out of there. And he recruited this guy, Eddie Dombrower, to come to Mattel, and they did a baseball game together. So now Don Daglo has moved on to Electronic Arts. He joined the company in late 1983 in kind of the second wave of producers that joined the company. He's naturally going to do some sports games as well, and he ends up producing two of them. Uh, World Tour Golf, a golf game, and far more significantly, Earl Weaver Baseball. Earl Weaver Baseball was an interesting game because it combined a focus on stats with a focus on physics and a focus on management. There had never really been a baseball game before. There had not, to my knowledge, been a baseball game before where you could purely be the manager of the game, where you could just let the computer do all of the pitching and batting and whatnot, and you just call the steals, call the takes, and call the intentional walks, do substitutions, you know, just the stuff that a manager does. I mean, every baseball game today comes with a manager mode. But that had never been done before Earl Weaver Baseball, and it it went right back literally to Don Daglow's first baseball game back in 71. 
because the manager mode in Earl Weaver was basically just his baseball game from 1971, which was a manager based game because that was text on the computer and doing the managing was really all that the computer could realistically allow you to do. It had the managing mode. It had the physics and it had the stats driven and it had a name. Earl Weaver was a very famous baseball manager who had led the Orioles to multiple pennants and World Series victories between the late 60s and the uh, early 80s. So he was a very well-known manager. And he imparted some of his knowledge to the game. He was one of the first managers to really pay attention to statistics and matchups and keep little individual index cards with tendencies of individual players. Stuff you'd keep on a computer today, but he's managing his, the heyday of his managing careers, the 70s, when you didn't have this stuff. And so it was a good fit for uh, a strategy game and a managerial game and also for a stats-driven game. Earl Weaver Baseball becomes a pretty darn successful baseball game upon its release in 1987. It's released under a new brand. On the box, in addition to saying Earl Weaver Baseball, it also says on the box, Sports Legends. This is the very beginning of trying to come up with something to tie together some of the sports games they're doing. We talked before in this episode and in other episodes about EA, the artist-driven company, right? Mm -hmm. There really was not an electronic arts brand at this period of time because of that artist focus. Electronic arts was not the star. Electronic arts was not the artist. Even the name electronic arts, they were thinking electronic artists, but then it was pointed out that we're not the artists. We just support the artists. And so, you know, they changed it to arts. We talked about that. Obviously, the name Electronic Arts or the, or the EA logo or what have you obviously appears on the game boxes. And obviously, they've run ads where the Electronic Arts name is front and center. But that's not really the brand. There isn't really an Electronic Arts brand so much as they are trying to create brands around the artists with varying degrees of success. By the mid-80s, from a brand management perspective, there really isn't an electronic arts brand. Promoting the artists has never really worked as a branding thing. So at this point, Bing Gordon, who's in charge of marketing uh, in this time period, really starts trying to focus on figuring out a brand or a set of sub-brands for electronic arts to try and tie their games together a little bit more and to try to create an idea in the public consciousness that if a game is coming out of this or that label, it's probably going to be a good game because of, of past performance, you know, to create a real brand out of things. They tried it with RPGs with the Bard's Tale. The Bard's Tale is a massive hit for EA. And they decide to put this moniker Tales of the Unknown on it. Everyone just calls it the Bard's Tale today. It's actually the full name of the game is Tales of the Unknown Volume 1, The Bard's Tale. Now, that Tales of the Unknown thing never stuck. It was dropped after that. There is no Tales of the Unknown Volume 2. And when they did a sequel to The Bard's Tale, it was The Bard's Tale 2. It wasn't Tales of the Unknown 2. Volume 2. Exactly. That Tales of the Unknown thing was an attempt to create an RPG sub-brand. It didn't work, but that was the idea. 
And so Sports Legends was the same idea. Bing was putting this on there, wanted that on there, as a way of trying to create a brand around the sports games, because EA kind of has some sports games at this point. Again, it doesn't take, it really doesn't work, but this is kind of the first attempt at doing that. The person who actually gets something going a little more in terms of this sports branding is a guy named Don Traeger. And we talked about Don Traeger. We talked about him in the Teenage Years episode because we did tell some of this EA Sports story in that episode. Don Traeger was another guy who was a sports fan going way back. He played Stratomatic as a kid, just like Trip Hawkins had. He was a marketer. He came out of marketing. He wasn't a product guy. He was a product manager as a marketer. In the mid-80s, kind of the way EA worked in terms of its marketing is each product was assigned a product manager. And that product manager would be responsible for writing all the advertising, writing the PR, anything that went on the box in terms of promotional material. Kind of all the promotional stuff was done by the product manager. This is different from the producer. The producer is the person that's in charge of the money and the overall project. The product manager is the marketing guy that is doing all the marketing copy on the game. Don Traeger did that for a while, but discovered that he really had an interest in and a knack for product development. And so he actually came over to the other side and became a producer. At this period, Don Traeger was fairly unique as someone who kind of understood the marketing world and understood the product development world and could kind of bridge the gap between the two. He could see both worlds, which not a lot of people could necessarily do in those days. He was interested in sports stuff, and he thought it would be a good idea to do an update of one-on-one. Because at this point, one-on-one is, you know, a four- or five-year-old game. It's getting long in the tooth, and Julius Irving isn't even playing anymore. I mean, he's no good as a celebrity on the box anymore. Larry Bird is still at the height of his powers, so Larry Bird is still a good name to keep on there. But they they need someone else. Don Traeger was originally from Chicago, so he had a lot of contacts in Chicago. He still knew a lot of people in Chicago. He had heard about this up-and-coming young guy on the Bulls named Michael Jordan. I thought he was a baseball player. <laughs> oh, Michael, why did you do that? So that we could have the ending to Space Jam. <laughs> yes, all for Space Jam, whose website still exists and which we will now put in the show notes just because we can. We're vindictive like that. (laughs) Transport yourself back to the mid-1990s. And it will look like it's from the 90s. When color schemes made no sense and everything was a gif. Oh, God. (laughs) It's the ancient times. (laughs) Anywho, so he thought it would be great if they took out Dr. J and replaced him with Michael Jordan and kept Larry Bird and did an updated version of one-on-one. Turns out that Michael Jordan's people were very much about technology and very much about the future, so doing a deal was no problem. It was very easy to get a deal with Michael Jordan for that reason. And so he does a new game, Jordan vs. Bird, one-on-one. It's released in 1988, I think, and it was also a hit. From there, the logical step, as the technology is getting better, is to move away from this one-on-one and actually do full basketball. And it just so happens 
that Don Traeger had been at Atari before he was at Electronic Arts. He had been a product manager or marketing manager in the coin-op division at Atari. So he still had contacts with some of the old Atari coin-op people. Uh, one of them was a guy named Robert Weatherby. He had been at Atari. And it just so happened Robert Weatherby had come up with this fancy new engine that could do full five-on-five basketball. Don Traeger, now that he's done the one-hit basketball game, moves into development on the next phase and does a game called Lakers versus Celtics, NBA playoffs. They get licenses from the Lakers and the Celtics. There are a few other teams, I think, in it as well. But uh, it's it's not the full league. It's kind of just taking the elite teams and having them, you know, pitted against each other. He's got that going on. And there's been a golf game that Don Daglow did. It's not particularly remarkable. And then there's the Earl Weaver baseball game. There's a lot of these games coalescing. The John Madden thing is in development, uh, may even be released at this point. I'm not sure on the timing of things. But still, there's a lot of games out there. They all have their own brand because EA has been very big on licensing personalities for all of these games. So you have John Madden football. You have Jordan versus Bird one-on-one. You have Earl Weaver baseball. The golf game didn't have a license, but everything else has a license. Don Traeger gets to thinking, we've got all of these personalities, but we really should bring them all together under a bigger brand that says sports. Because we're doing a lot of sports games. We have a lot of sports personalities. Let's do this. He does a white paper, a marketing white paper called EA Sports Legends, where his idea is that we need to have a unified sports brand around all of these personalities that we have so that we can have a unified marketing front and be a dominant company in sports. He's the first guy. I mean, Bing Gordon kind of did the sports legends thing, so he's not the very first guy, but he's essentially the first guy to come up with this idea of maybe EA should have a brand in sports and maybe EA should be working harder to dominate sports. It goes over really well with Bing Gordon. Bing Gordon's like, yes, this is what I've been looking for, because Bing Gordon has already been looking for a way to expand the EA brand, to strengthen the EA brand, and this is something that they can work with. It doesn't end up being called EA Sports Legends or whatever. Too much of a mouthful. Well, it, it turns out a couple of things kind of coalesce at the same time. First of all, and I think we talked about this in our Teenage Years episodes or something, John Madden football didn't do all of that well on the Apple II. There were other football games by then that were far more dynamic. And one of the interesting ones was the game TV Sports Football from Cinemaware. Cinemaware is a company that had been founded specifically to create interactive movies. Bob Jacobs may have even coined that term interactive movie. He was at least one of the early adopters of the term. Uh, He's not the first person to create what we would today call interactive movies, but he was big on the term interactive movie. That's why the name was Cinemaware, because it's like it's computer software that is cinematic. So this TV sports football game, it wasn't just the fact that it was a kind of action-oriented football game, but it was presented through the conceit of you're watching a television broadcast. There will be announcers, there'll be a pregame show, there'll be a halftime show. You are controlling a football game that is playing out on TV. Live for your entertainment. Exactly. Uh, Because that fit in very well with the interactive movie idea that they were doing in, in their other products. 
Don Traeger saw that and thought that was kind of neat. Then Mike Osaka was an artist at Electronic Arts. He did this doodle, this drawing of something he called the EASN, uh, Electronic Arts Sports Network. And Don Traeger's kind of like, well, what's what's this? And he's like, oh, I, I don't know. And, you know, it, it was kind of a, a, it wasn't necessarily meant to be anything. He was just doodling with it. But you, you put all of this together, you put this idea together that he he's thinking of this brand, this unified sports brand, and Cinematronics doing this thing where it's like they're on TV. And then Mike Osaka doing this doodle of this EASN thing. And it's like, that's the hook. The hook is the Electronic Arts Sports Network. All of our games are games that are being shown or whatever on the EASN, similar to TV sports football. This is the hook that they finally kind of coalesce around, Mike Osaka, Don Traeger, and Bing Gordon. They're like, yeah, this is what we're going to do, the Electronic Arts Sports Network. There's just one problem. They can't do this unless they get all of the other producer teams on board that are doing sports. You know, we think of EA as such a marketing-driven company today, but at this time, EA was a production-driven company. The producers were the people with the power at EA. So it's not like the marketing department could come in and say, we are doing the EASN now, and every sports game is going to be branded EASN. If a producer says, no, I'm not doing that, then they're not doing that. Because the producers are the ones that have the power over their games. So at this point, they have to get buy-in from all the other people. Don Traeger's just doing the basketball games. They have to get buy-in from the golf people and from the football people and, and whoever else. Everyone's got to be on the same page or this doesn't fly. Virtually everyone else is against it. And I don't know exactly why. I mean, it may as much as anything be a, a not-invented-here syndrome kind of thing. It's like, this isn't my idea. I'm, I'm not slapping this stuff into my game just because you want to have some unified whatever. You know, I'm not compromising my vision for you. <laughs> Darn you executive suit people. There was only one person that really bought into it. And that was a product marketing manager named Don Transith. Don Transith was a sports guy through and through. He had actually been a wide receiver at Washington State when he was in college. He wasn't a great player or anything, but I mean, he had college football playing experience. He was a real gung-ho sports guy. He had gone into advertising. He had been at J. Walter Thompson and had the Activision account at J. Walter Thompson in the early 80s when Activision was all great and everything. And then he came over to Electronic Arts in 1987. He was pretty new to Electronic Arts at the time that all of this was developing. But he was a big sports guy and a big marketing guy. And he saw it right away. He was like, yes, we have to do this. And so Don took it upon himself to take the basic idea that Don Traeger had outlined in his white paper and turn it into a complete brand. So Don Transith gets all of these materials together and does a big presentation for all of the producers. And they're still pretty much all against it. But the way Bing Gordon tells it, and, and Bing Gordon may be embellishing a little just because it's a great story, who knows, but we'll tell the story. The way, like stories. The way Bing Gordon tells it is that they still didn't like the idea necessarily of having to put all of the stuff in their own games, but they really liked some of the materials Don Transith put together. He went all out. He made hats and everything, and they really liked the hats. 
And so everyone was like, well, we still don't know that we want to do this, but we really like the hats. Can we have a hat? And Don was like, you can have a hat if you put the EAS in in your game. So hats, as in Team Fortress 2, won the day. Yay, hat? (laughs) And they finally got buy-in from everybody to do this EASN so that it would appear in all of the products. And this is the beginning of the EA Sports brand, for real, right there, is the development of the EASN. All because of hats. (laughs) Yes, and and again, it's a nice story. There's more to it than that, of course, but... But they did like the hats. I mean, that, that's a fact. People liked the hats. I got a cool hat and my homies agree I really look good in black. Ooh. There you go. They could have probably cracked the Team Fortress 2 code two decades before Valve did if they had applied the hats to, <laughs> to a DLC concept. But <laughs> wait a second. I'm not wearing a hat now. Neither are you. We're hatless. That's true. Hmm. the emergency hat room. Don't think we have one of those. The coat closet. Anywho. So this is all happening at a very important and fortuitous moment for Electronic Arts. At this point, they are a computer game company. And a hit game like some of these sports games might sell a couple hundred thousand copies. But it's a small market. It's a relatively small market. And it's not necessarily a great market to build branding around. because. It's too small a market to do television advertising. It's too small a market to do all of that much with. You really need to transition to console. Right. And of course, that's exactly what EA is doing at this time. You know, we talked about the whole Genesis reverse engineering thing. We won't go into that again here. But the important thing is that they are going on to the Sega Genesis at this period of time. And some of the sports stuff is going to be transferring over to the Sega Genesis. They've decided that one of the things that they absolutely have to do is get a football game on the Sega Genesis because they figure that'll definitely sell. Now, at this point, they're not thinking of their John Madden football game. John Madden football is this slow, kind of stodgy, not very successful thing. On the Apple II. On the Apple II. It's an albatross. Right. They want something more action-y to debut on the console because the console is a more action-oriented thing. So they bring in some fresh blood to do this. They bring in a guy as a consultant, I think at this time he's just a consultant, named Scott Orr. Scott Orr was the founder of a sports game company called GameStar that was very successful on computers in the mid-1980s. It was ultimately bought by Activision. Activision didn't really do a very good job of maintaining that sports brand, and it kind of went away. But Scott Orr was very good at doing these kind of football games. So he was brought in to work with Rich Hilleman as a producer to create a better football game. Now, it just so happens that Scott Orr at GameStar, had worked with a programmer named Troy Linden, who had then gone on and founded his own company, Park Place Productions, with a high school buddy of his named Michael Knox. And they created a football game for Data East, ABC Monday Night Football, 
that was a very solid arcadey console football game. So Scott Orr arranges for the Park Place people to meet the EA people to try to get a a deal in place to create this football game that's going to be on the Genesis. As Mike Knox, who's since passed away, but as Mike Knox tells the story, they have a meeting with Tripp, where Tripp lays out to them, it's like, you know, football is my life, I love football, football games are very important to me. Before I give you this game, I have to ask you one question. Are you going to make the football game you want to make, or are you going to make the football game I want to make? And Mike Knox just looks at him and says, I'm going to make the football game I want to make. And Tripp says, that was the litmus test. That's what I wanted to hear. He wanted to hear that, you know, these guys were just as passionate about football, just as passionate about making a great football game, and were not going to let Tripp or anyone else get in the way of doing what they thought was necessary in order to make a great football game. Scott Orr, Rich Hilleman, and the Park Place production people get together to figure out a way of updating this kind of Madden formula, keeping a little bit of the physical and strategic depth, but with something that's more action-based. The Park Place people hire a programmer named Jim Simmons to actually be the lead programmer on this. He's never done a game before, but he's a really good programmer. He comes to them and he says, I think I can make a 3D field. Now, when we're talking 3D in this context, we're not talking polygons. We're talking about a pseudo 3D thing using like isometric perspective and and that kind of stuff. Give the illusion of 3D. They're kind of skeptical, but they say, okay, go ahead, try it, see what you can do. Jim Simmons is such a good programmer with this stuff that he's able to create a really nice scrolling pseudo 3D play perspective that just looks really good and feels really good. It helps that the Genesis, unlike, say, the Apple II, has not only a more powerful processor, but is is optimized to be a game machine. Not to mention it has that blast processor for extra physics. Yes, about that. They realize that they're going to have something really actually quite special here. They do a really good job of translating the football action to kind of a game pad and uh, a really nice feeling control scheme. They have this really nice scrolling 3D play field. They realize that this is probably going to be really good. They've got the deal with Madden. They've got their Madden deal. And it just makes sense to tie the two of these together. So they decide that this game the Park Place Productions is working on will, in fact, be the new John Madden football, and they are going to put it on the Sega Genesis, and it's going to be a lead product on the Sega Genesis for the company. And then Sega comes calling. Hello there. Because Sega has a big deal with Joe Montana. Big, big, big deal that Mike Katz, their president, made, president of Sega of America. And they had been working with Activision, with Mediagenic, as they were called in this period, to create Joe Montana football. Mediagenic is unable to complete it because the company is falling apart. It's going bankrupt. But Mediagenic is able to hide this fact for a very long time from Sega. So Sega doesn't realize that the game's in trouble until it's too late. They need their big football game at Christmas. 
that they paid all the monies to Joe Montana for. And they have nobody that can do this game. And they know that Electronic Arts is working on the new John Madden football. So Hiao Nakayama, president of Sega, comes to Trip and says, we need a football game now. We will throw all the money at you to turn John Madden football into Joe Montana football. Will you do this for us? Trip doesn't want to do it. He understands very well that John Madden football is going to be a great game and it's going to be a console-defining game for Electronic Arts. They need the game to be theirs. They don't need to throw Joe Montana's name and throw a Sega logo on it and have it be a Sega game. Bing Gordon thinks this is just too good a deal to pass up because they really want to be on the Genesis platform in a big way. They've already got a special deal that they kind of coerced out of Sega over the whole reverse engineering thing. And they want to have a close relationship with Sega, and it doesn't get any closer than saving Sega's butt when they're in a desperate situation like this. Bing really is pushing him to take the deal, and finally they figure out a way to make it work. We'll do both games. We'll adapt the Madden engine to make Joe Montana football. We'll deliberately make sure it's not as deep or as good a game as John Madden football, and still release John Madden football. As its own thing. That'll work. (laughs) And they do. Nothing like writing your competition for you. Exactly. It's bizarre that that deal could have ever happened. And it really only happened because Sega was that desperate. Because they had to have a game. They didn't quite make Christmas. I think it came out January 91. Because it was a last minute thing. But they did get the game out. And Joe Montana's a hit. John Madden football's a hit. They're both hits. Sega then takes Joe Montana football to other companies for the sequels after that. They don't go back to EA, and EA keeps doing its uh, John Madden thing. That Sega Genesis John Madden, which is an EASN game, is really what puts them on the map. Because unlike the original John Madden football, this one is vibrant and feels good to control and still has a lot of that depth that the original John Madden football had, but now in a much nicer package. And so that game becomes a big hit, sells something like 400,000 copies, which is uh, pretty good on a new system like the, uh, the Sega Genesis that, remember, doesn't have a huge install base yet. So that's, that's pretty darn good sales on a brand new console in that time period. That's a big game. And this also helps in the epic fight between the Genesis and the Super Nintendo in the United States with, oh yeah, that's Sega. That's the sports platform. (laughs) Sure. Now, we'll talk about this. I mean, Madden does come to the Super Nintendo as well. But the one advantage area that the Genesis has, which is that it has the better processor, ends up being a huge advantage for a game like Madden, where you don't care that it may not display quite as many colors or have quite as good a sound as the Super Nintendo. That fast processor is is important. And so, yeah, Madden, I think, always does better on the Genesis than it does on the Super Nintendo, though it's, it's on both systems. It definitely gets on both systems. Only problem here is that we can't be the EASN anymore because there's this little network called ESPN. They might like their name not to be confused. Exactly. So at about this point, ESPN comes calling and says, Yes. (laughs) This ends up being the 
best thing that could have ever possibly happened to Electronic Arts. Because ESPN is not that concerned about crushing Electronic Arts. They understand that they're in completely different businesses from each other. It's just, look, guys, you're using a name here that is way too similar to our name. And I mean, you know, it, the lettering's a little similar and, and all of that. I mean, there's, and of course, EASN was partially inspired by ESPN. I mean, that's a no-brainer. So, guys, you know, we don't want to cause you all the bother, but you really can't use our name. And they're like, well, you know, it's not your name, really. It's different, and we think that it's okay that we do this. But because we like you, we'll stop using it, but we'll need something in return. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a negotiation. It's a settlement. They're not just going to back down because, you know, they could probably take it to court. So ESPN is like, okay, you change the name to something else, whatever you want, that doesn't have confusion with us. We'll give you commercial airtime during Sports Center to advertise your football game. EA at this point is only just getting into TV because when they were just on computer, the volume, the numbers aren't big enough to justify a TV spend. They're just now getting into TV. This is perfect because they're not going to have to, to pay for the airtime and they're going to get on the premier sports channel and on SportsCenter when all the sports fans are watching and their commercials are going to run during SportsCenter. I mean, that's huge. It's Absolutely a major, huge. major thing. You're talking about people who are, yay, football, yay, whatever. I'm watching it. I'm enjoying it. I play it outside with the kids. I can play it on computers now. <laughs> exactly. This is great. Only problem is now they need an ad campaign. And they need a new name. They can't be the EASN anymore. Bing Gordon's the one that does the rename. Obviously, it's renamed to EA Sports, which... Seems like an obvious thing, but I mean, things like that are really only obvious in hindsight. I mean, now that EA Sports is such a huge brand, it's like, of course it's EA Sports. I mean, it's not that there was a huge process that went into it, but they already had an EA Kids line. So they had already done something which was EA and then the thing it is. It's a pretty easy, simple thing to understand and an easy thing to remember. Company name, sub name of the thing. So Bing Gordon renames it EA Sports decides that, that that could be a pretty good thing. Then they work with their ad guy, Jeff Odiorni, to come up with the commercials and come up with the tagline. But, you know, it's, it's really so simple, but, but it's so clever. If it's in the game, it's in the game. It's in the game. You know, if, if it's in the real, actual game that people play in the real world, it's in the game that you're going to play on your Genesis or your Super Nintendo. And of course, it's not <laughs> in that sense. But if it's in the game, it's in the game. And then, of course, that's just shortened to EA Sports. It's in the game. They've got the tagline. They've got the commercial. They've got the free airtime at the heart of Sports America. Is it any wonder that Madden becomes huge? They don't even need to have a fantastic game at that point. They have so much rolling for them from pure momentum, as long as it's a halfway decent game, it's going to sell like hotcakes. Exactly. And it's probably going to sell for a couple of years. Except not. 
because we're not going to sell it for a couple of years. We are going to make a sequel immediately. So says EA to all of the retailers. And the retailers, what do they say? You're off your bloody rocker. Exactly. Video games don't work this way, sir. You can't put out basically the same game every year. We'll still have your old stock that hasn't completely sold through on the shelves. And then you're going to make us what? You're going to make us take several hundred thousand units of a new version that's basically the same game with just a couple of minor tweaks and some, you know, different players on it or whatever. You'll just end up eating it all because we're going to have to send it all back to you. I mean, we'll buy it. Fine. We're not on the hook. We've talked about how retailers aren't on the hook. Ever. We'll buy it, but you know that we're just going to end up sending it all back to you. But you see, Trip Hawkins, Rich Hilleman, Madden producer, Don Traeger, all of these people, they are Stratomatic players. Like I said, Stratomatic baseball players going way back. And what Stratomatic baseball and football players knew is that the most exciting day of the year was when the new set of Stratomatic cards came out. Because if you're really into these sports and really into simulating these sports, you want to be simulating with the actual players and the actual teams as they existed that year. You don't want the two-year-old cards and try to hack together yourself some semblance of what the teams look like this year. You I want-, want to simulate games as they are being played on TV in front of me. Right. So you want the company to go to the trouble of updating all the rosters with transactions and updating the stats to reflect changes in the players and all of this. You want that. So what doesn't work with a traditional game like a Super Mario Brothers? At least not in that time period. Nowadays, there's so many franchises that are annualized, but that's a whole different story. Big other can of worms we could delve into some other time. Exactly. But what didn't work with a Mario or a Zelda game could absolutely work with a sports game. And because these people were all Stratomatic players, they understood that. So despite the fact that the retailers were all against it, the very next year they release a new John Madden game. And they're right. They were absolutely right. That game sells. And then the next year sells. And then the next year sells. You've got annualized sports franchises now. It's just so funny that all of the retailers thought it was a huge mistake, a huge mistake. Toys R Us, who was their big guy, uh, it was everybody's big guy back then. Toys R Us was like, you are nuts. You will end up taking all of your stock back from us. Nope. You will have trouble keeping it on the show. That's right. So we've got the EA Sports brand, and we've got the basketball games, and we've got the football games. We've got the Madden. we got the tagline. We do have the tagline. It's in the game. You would think logically that they would be looking to build out systematically into other sports and kind of just add to their empire one piece at a time. If you just look at the games that they released in the next few years, You would think that that's exactly what happened. But it's really not. Again, it was almost a series of accidents that created EA Sports. They have, like I said, the football game and the the basketball games. They also, by this time, have the golf games. A producer named Rich Adam at the company 
decides that he wants to do a new golf game on the computer in the late 1980s because the company Access Software has had a lot of success with a golf series called Leaderboard. They want to get in on this golf thing. They'd done that World Tour golf a few years ago, but it was never much of a big thing. So Rich Adam contracted, he was a former Atari guy and a former Sente guy, which is a company that some of the Atari guys founded later on. And so he brought in as contractors a couple of former Atari slash Sente guys named Dennis Coble and Lee Actor and encouraged them to found a new software company, which they did, Sterling, in order to create a golf game for Electronic Arts. This was another kind of groundbreaking product. This is the thing about the EA Sports games. We have to remember, yes, they did a great job of doing the branding. They did a great job of figuring out the annualization and all of that. But the reason all of these games, whether it was one-on-one or the Genesis version of John Madden football or PGA Tour Golf that we're talking about right now, the reason that they became big and successful is because at their core, they had really talented programmers working on these games. Coble and Actor managed to create the first truly three-dimensional golf game. And what I mean by three-dimensional is that the fairway and the putting green are actually three-dimensional surfaces with rises and falls and dips and all of the features that you would find on a real golf course, not just a flat plane. Nintendo Golf, this is not. Right, exactly. They used some programming tricks and they used some perspective tricks in order to be able to do that. And then they come up with the kind of classic golf game swing technique. They can't do the golf swing in real time. I mean, they're not doing this on an Apple II. They're doing this on a PC, an IBM PC. But it's still a computer that at that time doesn't really have the processing power. It's like... You can have the 3D physics or you can have the calculations of the golf swing and all of that, but you can't have both. It was the uh, early 90s, right? Late 80s. Late 80s. So in my personal time sphere of computers, we're talking the 386, Mm -hmm. maybe the 486. So you can have the 3D stuff or you can have the accurate physics calculations, but you can't have both at the same time. So they couldn't do real-time golf swings. That was impossible. So they came up with the three-click approach, where you determine your power and click, you determine your angle and click, and then you click to shoot or whatever the three things are. But it's kind of the classic approach that all the golf games took for many years after that. And they were the inventors of that, the three-click approach. And the reason they did that is that it allowed all the calculations to be done while you're doing all the clicking. And then after those calculations, it shows the result of your swing with the guy swinging the club. So you get your physics calculations and you get your graphics without breaking the illusion, essentially, you know, while keeping it all pretty seamless. So that game does very well on PC and then is also ported to Genesis. And so it does very well there. And again, they get the license they had wanted. You know, they were mostly into personality licenses at this time. They had wanted Jack Nicklaus, who was, you know, far and away the most famous golfer. But they were outbid by Accolade. Accolade actually got the the Jack Nicklaus license and released Jack Nicklaus's 18 holes of golf or whatever. So instead, they went to the organization and they got the PGA license because they still wanted to have a license on it. And so that's PGA Tour Golf. Much, much later in its life cycle, they do get the big golfer and it becomes Tiger Woods Golf. But in this time period, it's PGA. So they've got 
the golf alongside the football and the basketball. This is all going well for them. The other two sports that they really come to dominate, hockey and soccer, they, they really could have easily never been on them because EA actually really had no desire to do either one. Hockey came about because of the Park Place production people. You know, they had made the football games. They had done the ABC football for Data East, and they'd done the Madden football for Electronic Arts. But Michael Knox's real sports passion was actually hockey. He was a big hockey guy. That's what he actually thought would be a good thing to do. So after they had the successful relationship on the Madden football, he came to them and said, why don't we do a hockey game for you? And EA is like, no, thank you. And Mike Knox is like, but hockey's popular. And EA is like, no, it isn't. And so Mike Knox is like, okay, if I can show you hockey is popular, can we do this? And they're like, eh, I guess. So they went and they, uh, you know, there were a couple of hockey games on the NES, including the one that you very much liked, Blades of Steel. I adore Blades of Steel. I am not a sports person, but I love Blades of Steel. And so they went and they pulled the numbers on those, Blades of Steel and a couple others. And they're like, see, look, these games did pretty well. We can make you a great hockey game and it will also do very well. And so they were like, okay, fine. So they do the hockey game. They do NHL hockey. They get the NHL license. Jim Simmons does the programming again. It's basically the same team that did the, the uh, Genesis Madden game, do the Genesis hockey game. It starts out as NHL hockey, and then it has to go and become NHL Players Association hockey for a couple of years because this is a game that emphasized, just like the early Maddens, emphasized fun over complete realism. The early Maddens, obviously, you know, were, were solidly built games, but they had their fun moments, like when a player would get hurt and the ambulance would zoom out onto the field. We can put that in the show notes and stuff like that. You know, they didn't take themselves too seriously. And one of the things that was very popular about hockey in this period of time was the fights. Fight. The, the players, usually the enforcers on each team, designated players that would be the fighters. It's not like you had your star forward go in and start attacking someone else. If the game was getting too out of hand in the opinion of the enforcer on a team, he would throw down with the enforcers on the other team and they'd have a fight to kind of blow off steam. I mean, you know, they'd get penalties for it, but it was one of these things where the NHL kind of didn't like it, but people are bloodthirsty. So people kind of liked it. So they didn't want to get rid of it. So they kind of tolerated it. So there was fighting in the NHL games. Heck, there's fighting in Blades of Steel. <laughs> exactly. And there's fighting in the NHL games, which was great, except that they were doing this big showcase of uh, NHL 92 or somewhere around there. Doesn't matter. They have this big thing, the commissioner's there and everything, and everyone's talking about how wonderful the game is, how great it plays. It's got that same great 3D programming magic that Jim Simmons knows how to do. It's all wonderful. And then one person shouts out, hey, I've got Wayne Gretzky fighting here. Because even though Wayne Gretzky in, in a real game would never be the one fighting, it would be the enforcers on his team. The programmers of the game didn't distinguish to that level. You know, any player could potentially get into a fight. The commissioner of hockey is there watching as Wayne Gretzky's blood is on the ice as they're fighting each other. You know, game Wayne Gretzky, obviously not the real Wayne Gretzky. Basically, after that, the commissioner was like, no, we cannot do this. Then they were like, well, the game is ready to ship. I mean, it's too late to take the code out. And he was like, well, you can keep the fights in, but there will be no NHL license. 
So they finally decide, fine, we're keeping the fights in. <laughs> and so they lose the NHL license. So they go to the Players Association. You know, the Players Association is like, yeah, yeah, we'll do a deal with you. Yeah, yeah, fine. You can leave the fights in. Just just make sure the fights are realistic. You know, don't don't make them all fanciful. We'll let you have fighting. So it becomes an HLPA hockey. An HLPA 93 is the name of the game. When it comes time to do the 94 version of the game, they go to a different developer. They, they do this a lot. After they've gotten these games started with some of these companies like Park Place and Sterling for the golf game and all of that, they buy the rights away from these companies that help them make those early games so that they don't have to pay them royalties forever. None of the guys that were making these games ever thought, you know, Park Place Productions never thought that there would be a Madden 2017, you know, they figure, you know, a game series has, you know, maybe if it's a really popular series, a game series maybe has five games in it max and then it's done. So better to take a payout now and, you know, give up rights to the future and and get paid now than hold on to rights that are going to be worthless in a few years anyway. Whoops. Oopsies. So at this point, they've parted ways with Park Place just because they want to get the rights fully into their own wheelhouse. So for NHL 94, they go to a new guy, Mark Lesser, and have him do the programming of it. They know that at this point, multimedia is right around the corner. And eventually, they're going to start needing to incorporate real game footage into the games. Not when you're actually playing, but, you know, just highlight reels and all of this stuff to make it more exciting. Who owns all of the hockey game footage in existence? Hmm. At the professional level, I mean. The NHL? That's right. Whom we don't have a license from because we have fighting in our game and that makes them unhappy. Made them very unhappy. So at this point, they come back to the NHL and try to renegotiate a license. And the NHL is like, yeah, we'll let you have a license if you take out the fighting. So at this point, they bite the bullet and they're like, okay, fine. People like the fighting, but at this point, we need the NHL license more than we need fights. So they take the fights out and NHL 94 is NHL 94. (laughs) And they have the NHL license, you know, forever after, (laughs) after that. Minus fights. Minus fights. And there are still some old timers that very much lament that. But I mean, you know, the game kept improving in other ways. I mean, Mark Lesser took the game to a new level of realism. So you lost the fights, but you got some more realism in return. You got the NHL license in return. And obviously they keep improving from there. So, so that's all good. And, you know, they, they still are the dominant hockey company to this day. Of course, their biggest franchise, their biggest by far, much bigger than Madden, is FIFA. Wait, what? Well, yeah. Because Madden's super popular in the United States, but nobody outside of the United States cares about American football. Oh, right. There is an entire world outside the United States that very much cares about soccer. So for our American listeners, the other football, the real football, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, is soccer. They kind of like it a lot. That's right. To fanatical levels, more so than us in football. Absolutely. But at this time, EA is a very U.S.-centric company. EA isn't that concerned about getting involved in soccer. They're really not 
all of that interested in it, quite frankly. But they do now have a European branch. And the European branch is struggling in the early 90s to kind of grow and become something. It ran into real trouble in the late 80s. It's kind of righted the ship since then. We talked about that, I think, in our update episode. But they're still in need of more and better product to kind of cement themselves. Mark Lewis and David Gardner, who are the two guys that are running EA Europe at this point, start really clamoring, saying, we need a soccer game. If we are going to be serious in the European market, we need a soccer game. EA Corporate, back in San Mateo, is like, soccer, We have Madden. We have American football. That's football. We don't need other football. Mark Lewis and Dave Gardner are like, no, we need a soccer game. They run some projections of what they think they can sell in Europe in terms of soccer game. The numbers are pretty big because it's Europe and it's soccer. And they like it a lot. So finally, EA's like, okay, those projections are pretty big. We'll let you do your soccer game. But it's very reluctant, very reluctant to do a soccer game. Just like the hockey one. Yeah, I mean, even more reluctant, I would say, than they were on the hockey game. But they're like, okay, fine, do it. But they don't give them much resource to work with. So EA Europe doesn't really have any development infrastructure at this point, really. So they contracted with two guys in Liverpool named Jules Burt and John Law. These two guys had been kind of trying to sell EA Europe on doing some kind of game for them. So the EA Europe people, Lewis and Gardner, were, were familiar with them, knew they existed. And so they were kind of like, okay, you two guys, we've got a green light to do a soccer game. Go make us a prototype. They look at some of the games that are in the market that are big at the time, like Sensible Soccer. That's, that's kind of the, one of the really big ones. They kind of start playing around and figuring out how they want to do this. All of the games up to that time were basically all overhead perspective games. If you were playing a soccer game, it was a straight top-down perspective. That was considered kind of the most efficient way to show the action on the entire field. But it's not very attractive. It's not a very attractive way to to show a football pitch, really. So they tried prototyping it that way, and they just didn't like the way it looked. I mean, it, it just didn't have very much pizzazz. So they did a second prototype. They had been working on a kind of beach volleyball game that they were hoping to do, and that was more from a side perspective. So then they did a second prototype where they did it from a side perspective with parallax scrolling and everything. They discovered that you really couldn't keep track of the whole pitch that way. I mean, it was just, it just wasn't going to work. So then they blended the two and they came up with an isometric perspective. Today, that may not sound like something all that revolutionary. And even back then, isometric perspective had been done in games, but it hadn't been done in a soccer game before. Suddenly it created kind of a viewpoint where you could keep track of all the action that was going on. You could figure out where you were on the pitch relative to everything else. But you could also still have something graphically interesting and something where you get a better sense of the player and where you can have the ball instead of being kind of tied to the player like it usually was in games, actually have the ball get kicked down the field as the player 
runs, which is a more realistic perspective on on football or soccer. And so it's that isometric perspective that stuck. And it was no one had ever really done that before. I mean, that was revolutionary and it just looked so good where it's kind of the same thing with the golf. Nobody had done the 3D before with John Madden football. Nobody had created a 3D effect like Jim Simmons did on the Genesis version. It's like each of these games that EA starts with has a hook that makes it different and more interesting visually or strategically or what have you. Or both. Or both from what came before. So it's not just a simple matter of EA is big company and EA has big marketing and EA has big big brand and EA then becomes the big game. I mean, the games usually started out with some kind of great hook to them as well. And in this case, the hook was this isometric view. The EA Europe guys love it. But EA decides that they want to bring it in-house. They don't want these two guys to actually do the full game. So they move it over to Distinctive Software, which is a company that they had bought a couple of years prior and which was rebranded as EA Canada and remains today EA's largest studio. It still does FIFA today. And so a small team at EA Canada takes this prototype, refines it, builds out from it, and completes the first FIFA game. The licensing with FIFA, again, almost came about by accident. Once again, you know, they knew they needed a brand for it. But the EA marketing people back in the States were the ones that were kind of looking into this. And they didn't know the first thing about soccer. They were looking at getting a Team USA soccer license. Which is worthless, because the whole point of this game is to sell it in the rest of the world, not sell it in the United States. Someone in Britain doesn't want to use what doesn't want to play Team USA soccer. Meh, those rebels. So EA Europe takes it upon itself to go to FIFA, the governing body of international football, and get a license. Neither side really realizes what they have. FIFA doesn't realize how valuable this is, and they cut them a sweetheart deal because they just have no experience with this before. But EA kind of assumed that by getting the FIFA license, they'd also get the rights to all the different teams and players and whatnot, too. And it turns out FIFA has rights to none of that. If you get an MLB license, you get the rights to use all the MLB teams. If you get an NFL license, you get the right to use all the NFL teams, their their logos, their names, etc. You get a FIFA license, you don't get the rights to any team. FIFA's just FIFA. All the teams control their own rights. So that was a much more complicated rights situation to kind of get under control, (laughs) but they did. And so they did the first FIFA soft soccer and it was a huge hit. You know, Madden did 400,000 first FIFA did 600,000, you know, it it did more because it had an international audience and that's kind of always been the trend. Madden has sold tens of millions of units, but FIFA is well over a hundred million units and it's, it's bigger. It's bigger than Madden. It's their big one. And they were that reluctant to do it. Yes. So with FIFA, you've basically now got all of the big properties in place. I mean, there's some other things they did. They had NASCAR games for a while. There's the NBA Live franchise. I mean, there's other stuff that goes on. But I mean, you know, the pillars are Madden and FIFA. The golf and the hockey games are also very important. So you've kind of got all of those pillars. It changes EA. You know, we won't go too much into this, but... EA was an artist-driven company where the artists kind of made the games that they wanted, 
And if EA saw some value to that, they would sign the artist and help the artist develop it and sell the game. When it came time to do sports games and when they decided that they had to annualize sports games, that's when it got to the point that they couldn't do this artist-driven model anymore because artists don't want to do sequels. Most of EA's early games did not get sequels. There are exceptions. There was an Archon 2. It played very differently than the original Archon, but it was an Archon 2. And we really, really want a remake of Archon 1. (laughs) They did get a couple of sequels, but most of their games, whether they were hits or not, did not get sequels because the artists wanted to move on to the next big thing. Sports games need sequels. Sequels need control. Sequels need to be done in-house. So this is really what drives the expansion of the EA studio system. I mean, it's not the sole reason, but it's getting developers in their stable that can do these annual franchises that aren't artists wanting to do their own thing that really gets the studio system going. EA Canada becomes huge doing FIFA. FIFA becomes their bread and butter. They do other things, but that's what they're most known for. When it comes to Madden, they used outside contractors for a long time, but eventually they brought that in-house. What happened is they were doing the game on both the Genesis and the Super Nintendo, like I said, but they were having a lot of trouble doing the game on the Super Nintendo because of the processor problem. The Super Nintendo is a superior system in almost every way to the Genesis, but it had a slower processor because they used a Forked MOS technology processor because they were originally going to do backward compatibility with the NES, which had a 6502 derivative in it. So it had a slower processor. Turns out that there was this company, Visual Concepts, that had a programmer named John Shepard in it that had programmed on the Apple II GS, which had the exact same processor in it that the Super Nintendo did. So he had some expertise with that. So they took the Super Nintendo Madden to visual concepts, and John Shepard got it running much, 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 much better than anyone else had before. Shortly after that, John Shepard and two other guys that had been working on Madden games for EA decided to leave visual concepts and went down to Florida and founded a new company called Tiburon. Because they had that expertise, eventually Electronic Arts moved the Super Nintendo Maddens away from visual concepts and gave them to Tiburon. And because Tiburon was so good at that and did such a good job of it, they eventually bought Tiburon, which became EA Tiburon, and took over the entire Madden franchise. And Tiburon still does Madden to this day. Down in Florida. Exactly. So the two big studios, EA Canada and EA Tiburon, which have been successful and continue to exist even as other EA studios have come and gone, they continue to exist and thrive because they are the ones doing the two big sports games, FIFA and Madden. At the same time, you get these big studio structures, these annualized franchises, the focus on forecasts and targets and all of that. So you get the other side of EA that not everybody likes, that it's also corporate and focused more on sequels and focused more on marketing projections than it is on innovative games. And, you know, that that's a debate that we won't get into here. That's way too big a subject, especially with how long the episode's gone. But it's, it's just to kind of point out the role that EA Sports plays in that. Even today with the loot box controversy, it's playing out in that because EA was very successful during this free-to-play era in reimagining Madden and particularly FIFA 
as games as service models where you can buy updates, buy new teams, buy new updates. They really did this with FIFA, with FIFA Online. You can buy obscure teams, you can buy updates to this and that to kind of customize your game. And it's it's a free-to-play model that has been very successful because sports people want to collect all of that stuff. They don't see that as as a disadvantage. They're not traditional game people. They don't care if they get a $60 boxed product or if they have to buy a bunch of add-ons to get what they want. They're not traditional game people. They're used to that with dealing with any sports team and going, okay, yeah, I got to spend this much to go see them. I got to spend this much to watch them. I got to spend this much for the hat, right? this much for the shirt, and that much for the nachos. Exactly. So it's kind of a different mindset. And EA has been very successful with that. And the new CEO of EA, Andrew Wilson, came out of EA Sports where he had success with that model with FIFA Online. Now they're starting to apply some of that model with the loot boxes and everything to their standard AAA games under Andrew Wilson's watch. And I think part of the problem is that they perhaps didn't realize that what works in sports games doesn't necessarily work with the core gamer nearly as well. Or at all. Yes. It would be oversimplifying to say that's the only thing going on here. That's just to say that a lot of what people don't like about electronic arts really comes out of the sports side of the company because the sports side is so different because it pulls in these people that aren't traditional gamers and like to have annualization, like to have add-ons like to have all of this stuff in their game experience that the rest of us don't necessarily. So when EA tries to expand out of what they did successfully in sports and put it into other areas, uh, it can be a mixed bag. And something that's true, when EA was younger and was getting into sports, all the game companies, all the game, uh, all the retailers were just constantly saying, serialized, that's not going to work. Doing this, that's not going to work wow, that actually worked. And then now we're sort of seeing the reverse where we go like, oh yeah, this will work, this will work, this will work. What do you mean it doesn't work? (laughs) Well, we hope it doesn't work. We'll see. This is still a developing situation. For all I know, loot boxes will work very well for them and all of us that don't like that kind of thing will just be sad. Well, we're old and we can tell the kids to get off our digital lawn. That's right. So I guess that pretty much wraps up how EA... And EA Sports is in the game, really came to be and and has become the dominant thing that it is today. Still rolling out lots of Madden, lots of FIFA, some other sports titles. Not necessarily uh, baseball or basketball so much anymore. Absolutely. So I guess this is that time where I ask you that horrible question that everyone looks forward to at the end of every episode. What do we delve into next time? Well, we just spent a lot of time talking about one of the true giants of the home computer slash home console industry, One Electronic Arts. So I think it might be fun to turn our attention to one of the huge giants of the arcade industry, a little company called the Williams Electronics Manufacturing Corporation, or at least that's what it was known through part of its history. This is a company that has gone through so many spin-offs and changes and this and that. It's really a more convoluted story in some ways than the Atari brand. That would be impressive. Yeah, it's gone through some permutations, but I mean it's it's an ancient company. I mean in its 
in its original form. It goes all the way back to the 1940s. It has been such a driving force at several critical moments in the American arcade industry. I think that that would be a fascinating story to delve into in some more detail. And I only know them as one of those pinball companies. (laughs) Well, they're much more than pinball. They're also Mortal Kombat. Oh, right. We mentioned that at some point. And Defender. And so many video games. So Pinball, Defender, Mortal Kombat, and more. Next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Send us feedback at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.